Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, Ten Resolutions of Manly Honor. I was on a flight recently, and the guy next to me, his name was Chester, was asking me about what I do here at Ellerslie. And as I explained that we weren't connected with a specific denomination, he exclaimed, Oh, so you accept all viewpoints. Uh, no. We here at Ellerslie accept only one viewpoint, God's, as spoken by His Word. And we build our lives upon it, which is what resolved manly honor truly looks like. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Ten resolutions of manly honor. That's a good way to kick this semester off. Ten resolutions of manly honor. Before I get into what the ten resolutions are, I sort of want to lay a little foundation that we can build upon and reason from. I have some other title options for this particular message. We came up with 10 resolutions for manly honor. It's nice and uh, noble sounding. It's an honorable type of sound to it, and it causes us to rise up and go, I want to hear this message. Look at some of the other titles I could have chosen. 10 decisions that lead to an early death. (laughs) I passed that one over. 10 ways to lose friends and cripple your career. Ten ways to get on hell's most wanted list. Ten ideas that, if implemented, add great adventure to your life. That's just too long of a title. But that's the thing I want to focus on. You see, we have a craving for life to be more than it is. But when you try and get life to be more than it is on your terms and not on God's terms, it falls flat. We try and make up the difference in our soul. There is something missing. And that is, we need God imparted to us at the fullest measure that he intends to be imparted to his saints. And then life begins to work. Yes, it gets difficult on the outside. Yes, it seems like all hell is awakened to the fact that we exist. Remember that discussion between Job and God? I'm sorry, Satan and God about Job? And God's like bringing up his name and Satan knows full well who Job is. It's like we don't really want to be in that conversation. Could you leave my name out, please? Most of us look at Job as a man who suffered. I don't look at Job as a man who suffered. That's not the totality of his life. Any more than Jesus is just a man who suffered. Job was a man who was triumphant. Job was a man who stood in his generation as a testimony to the glory of his God. That's what I want to be. That's what I want you to be. You don't focus on the difficulties. You focus on what is gained through standing for Jesus Christ. Yes, There are challenges in the way, but that's not what we focus on. Now, I I didn't ever give birth to a baby, so you have to be careful when you're a guy and you start talking about those types of things. But for a woman just to focus on labor and delivery as the essence of what it means to have children, as opposed to having children, the beauty of having that fellowship for lifelong communion with your children is what you focus on. That's the same thing with the Christian walk. Don't focus on the difficulties. Focus on the reward of Jesus Christ. The risk of being specific. See, what this message is about, I'm going to give ten resolutions. These resolutions are going to be fairly specific. In other words, these are things that just are a little more on target than we oftentimes like to be in modern Christianity. We like to blur things a little. When I was writing books, and I, you know, it sounds like I've stopped writing books, and for a season I have, When Les and I were writing books uh, rather regularly, there was something we always ran into in dealing with the publishing industry. 
And that is this publishing industry did not like us being specific. If we made generalities or just sort of blanket statements that sort of wafted in one direction or another, but no one could really take offense at them because we're not saying anything concrete. Well, that's fine, but you could never say anything concrete. So my way of always describing it was, you know, the emperor who was naked. Remember that story? He's walking down the street with no clothes on. It's a terrible story. Uh, poor guy. Uh, but if someone is walking down the road naked, the best thing you can do is be the little child that says, uh, Mama, why is the emperor naked? You see, the little child sees it clearly, concrete, specific. What is the emperor's problem? He's naked. Okay, now what we have a tendency to do in Christianity is to say, no, 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 we don't say that around here. Naked, it just makes people uncomfortable. So everyone's looking at the nakedness. But we can't say that, so what we say is, well, the emperor has issues. <laughs> and then the really daring ones say, well, the emperor has clothing issues. Whoa, way too specific. Okay? We're going to be specific. Why is it important to be specific? There's a few issues. For instance, in praying, there are people that train people in praying not to be specific. Do not be specific in your praying. That's like having a gun in a time of war and not being specific in where you aim it. If you want to be effective with your armaments, with your weaponry, you are very specific in where you aim because it's a target. If you aim at the wrong things, you end up hitting the wrong things. What we do in prayer is we oftentimes send forth a volley of bullets into the air and hope that one of them will strike its mark. We pray general prayers. God bless this earth. You know what? Your faith will never grow with a prayer like that. If someone were to ever ask you, does God answer your prayers? Well, you know, it's hard to tell. God bless this earth? I mean, come on! Specific praying is what builds faith. You see, when you pray specific prayers, now I wouldn't encourage you just to pray whatever you want. I, I would encourage you to pray in accordance with the word of God and in accordance with the leading of God in your life. God is praying. And he has prayers that he wants to pray in and through you. When you pray in accordance with those, and you pray very specifically, you see specific answers. And it actually grows your spiritual life. In preaching, well, no one really is supposed to be that clear in what we're talking about. We're supposed to be general. Put a haze out there. there we believe as Christians that there is a way to the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. There are churches that will literally tell you when you're coming in to speak, because like, could you come in and speak in our area or at our conference? Please do not say that Jesus is the only way. Really? What in the world am I talking about then? It's specific. If you are not clear on this point, then you are creating a stumbling block for your hearers. This is not an option. Jesus is the only way. I know that that sounds intolerant of every other religious viewpoint. It is. It does not give any space to the enemy. God is right. Let every man and every doctrine that tries to refute God be considered a lie. How's that? We're specific in our preaching, but it's not our opinion. It's the word of God. If I am not in agreement with the word of God, you be very specific back to me saying that isn't right. We can be specific because specifics are what change the human life. We must know our God. It's not that some God is out there that has rescued you. Jesus has rescued you. You don't just put your faith in something. You put your faith in him. 
in his work. What was his work? Look at the word of God. It defines his work very specifically. When you respond to it specifically, your life is changed in accordance with what the word of God promises. It's when we respond to the word of God in generalities that we do not see any change or alteration in our existence. Our preaching must be specific. In our teaching, this starts to get into some uncomfortable territory here. You see, in teaching, we have so many doctrinal viewpoints. In fact, at Ellerslie, we have probably every representative, every, let me say it this way, every doctrinal bias represented in this group, every possible denominational slant that would be in the conservative realm of Christianity. In other words, it starts with the premise that the word of God is the word of God. I mean, because most liberals aren't attracted to Ellerslie. Let me just put it that way. However, if you believe the word of God is the word of God, then you're probably attracted to this environment, which means we have quite the melting pot here. We have quite the environments of differentiation on specifics. Okay, you start talking about baptism, and suddenly the group divides in half and goes, you're one of them. <laughs> That's what happens. Okay, you start talking about Calvinism, Armenianism, and then you. <laughs> that said, the Bible is specific. The Bible doesn't say a whole bunch of different things. It says one thing. We are in the process, as the body of Christ, of learning how to work with it in accordance with the Spirit of God to lay aside our biases and let the Word of God speak. If we have always carried a bias because of our heritage and our upbringing that is incorrect with the Word of God, who changes, the Word of God or us? Everyone else or us? The Word of God is right. And that's our basic premise here. The word of God rules. Eric Ludy, throw his opinion out if it's not in accordance with the word of God. Test everything you hear from up here on this platform. Everything. Because God is right, not Eric Ludy. God. Anyone else that gets up and stands up in front of this group, you test them against the word of God. Now, you don't do it harshly, demeaning. It's like, oh, I bet they're wrong before they even start. In other words, you give people grace. You give them mercy. We're not As human representatives of the king of kings, we're not all perfectly accurate. He's accurate. The word of God is accurate. And that's our framework from which we teach from. So we need to begin to teach specifics. I'm training up my son now, who is six and a half, and I'm starting to deal with doctrinal teaching. Well, you know, when you're just dealing with global doctrinal ideas, you know, Jesus is God. Well, you know, in the conservative camp, you don't have a lot of disagreements on this. But when you start getting specific, it makes a lot of us uncomfortable. You see, that's what's led to division in the body of Christ for all these years, all these centuries. Should we not be specific? Isn't that an interesting question? Would it be better for the body of Christ if we weren't specific? I think specifics, when handled rightly, are what strengthen the body of Christ. See, if we know how to work together to take the word of God and say, we believe that. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what you inherited from your religious background. I care about what the word of God says. Let's wrestle with that. And if we can all be open and honest with it, and one of us takes this one scripture and we say, but this says this. Then if we can look at it and say, it does say that. But let's look at the context of that. Let's look at the overall global understanding of scripture. If you want to test and prove a doctrine, it must be able to stand up under the scrutiny of every single scripture in the entirety of the word of God. Say 95% of the Bible supports your vantage point, And there's 5% that doesn't and refutes it. You know what? It doesn't mean that what you're saying is wrong. It's that it needs to be refined. 
There's something wrong about it because it's being corrected by 5% of the Bible. That 5% is a tool. You embrace it. It's the word of God. When you stand against that 5%, are you standing against men who are standing on that 5% going, hey, look at the 5%. Are you standing against them? No, you're standing against God. God wrote that 5%. Therefore, that 5% is of value to your soul. Specifics hone us, shape us, refine us in what we believe. And guess what? When we can go through that test and come into harmony with the word of God and stand in harmony with the body of Christ around us that came from every doctrinal vantage point and say, we stand here on the rock of Jesus Christ and we will not be moved. Specifics lead to rock. You know, when you're general and you're wishy-washy in your doctrinal vantage points, you have sand beneath your feet. It's a whole bunch of crumpled up rock, little pieces of it. This piece, this piece, this piece, it's not solid. You need to have something solid beneath your feet. What happens when you mess with the map? Okay, so we have the Bible. Truth. You know, I've just spoken very highly of it. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God in text. Then we also have the Word of God in person, Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to realize. The map is not what we worship. We give our lives to protect every little word, dot, and tittle within the Bible. Why? Because it's the only thing that leads us to the treasure. The map to buried treasure is the word of God. So we scrap and we fight for the integrity of the word of God. However, it is not our end. It is the means to get to Jesus. So what happens when you mess with the map? If you mess with the map to buried treasure, what happens? You mess with the treasure. You see, if you mess with the map, now suddenly you're having trouble finding the treasure. Christianity today. We're struggling with finding the treasure. We see it, but we can't get there. What's wrong? We messed with the map. We've justified why we shouldn't expect this, 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 and this in our Christian life. Well, no one else does. We're no longer going on the journey and trusting like little children what the Word of God says. I want to give you an illustration. This is out of one of my messages at Ellerslie called Translations. The King James Version versus the message. Now, I'm not promoting either one of them. Well, let me say it this way. I'm definitely not promoting the message, okay? So (laughs) what you're going to see here is a word-for-word translation, one of the most historically understood as a word-for-word translation. You you have the NASB, you have the ESV, or both word-for-word translations. Then you start to get a little more milky with the idea-for-idea translations. And then you get into dynamic equivalent translations, where it's just, well, it sort of says something like this. Okay, that's not a translation. Okay, word for word, we are securing what God said. God said it very specifically. He meant what he said. Let's trust that he meant what he said, and let's not change it or alter it to fit what we want him to be saying. So we have, from way back in the 1500s all the way to the present... Something that has happened to the word of God. And I want you to realize, when you lose specifics, you lose truth. Watch this. An examination of Psalm 25, 8 through 10. So in the very beginning, you see 8, verse 8, King James, and you'll see the message. King James, which is a word for word, out of the Hebrew here. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore will he teach sinners in the way. What does the message say? God is fair and just. He corrects the misdirected, sends them in the right direction. Now, there's no big criminal activity going on here yet. But what you see is sinners has become misdirected. 
if you are a sinner, is that merely all you are is misdirected? You know what a sinner is? It's someone in rebellion against God. Someone who's misdirected just got, got, got some bad directions. You know, they're like, yeah, the Conoco station is just down here to the right. Well, really, it was that direction to the left. Okay, they're misdirected. It's not their fault. They're not culpable. They're not responsible. A sinner is responsible. Huge difference. Okay, now, we could look past that and say, well, yeah, but I get the gist of what it's saying. And then, in the right direction as opposed to the way. Do you know who the way is? In the Old Testament, then fulfilled in the New Testament, when Jesus says, he is the way, what's he referring to? He teaches sinners in the way. Jesus. Okay? It's not just the right direction. Now, Jesus is the right direction. So you see the subtle loss of clarity and specificity. Okay? Now, that's just the beginning. Watch what happens in verse 9. Oh, wait a minute. Here's a couple questions. Is a sinner and one that is misdirected the same? Are the way and the right direction the same thing? Psalm 25, verse 9. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. Okay? The word is meek. Okay, it's a very specific thing in Scripture, what a meek person is. Look at what it says in the message. He gives the rejects his hand and leads them step by step. Is a meek person and a reject the same thing? You know what a meek person is? A meek, the, the image, the metaphorical picture in the Hebrew is a stallion that is broken to harness. Something very strong that is governed and brought in. It's a sinner who has been directed in the way and becomes meek. All that they have and all that they are has been bought, purchased by the blood of Jesus, given over to the control of God. They become harnessed to the will of God. So back here it says, the meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. Who's going to learn it? The meek. Those that have been brought under the control of God. Okay, that's a little different than a reject. Okay, if you follow me on that. Is giving a hand the same as guiding in judgment? See, it says he gives the rejects his hand. Well, actually, it says he guides them in judgment. Now, that's a small thing, and we can always just overlook these things. It's not that big of a deal. But is there a difference between guiding them and giving a hand to lead them? Now, look at verse 10. This is where it sort of kicks into a whole new gear. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimony. Who do you think it's talking about? It's talking about the meek. It's talking about those that were sinners but were directed in the way, right? Okay, that's the context here. Now we have the message. From now on, every road you travel will take you to God. Did we read that correctly? (laughs) Follow the covenant signs. Read the charted directions. Well, that's a good idea. But did I read that correctly? From now on, every road you travel will take you to God. Is that truth? You guys are sharp. It's not truth. That's a lie. Being passed off as the word of God in our generation. Some of you could say, well, no, that's a rendering of the word of God. You know, this, the message is treated from pulpits and with students, serious students of the word of God as the word of God in our generation. These are fighting words for a man of God. We protect the specificity of the word of God. You do not put your grubby hands on the text of scripture. Because you mess with the map, you mess with the treasure. You start clipping off the portions of the map you don't like, guess what? Suddenly you can't find the X. Where is it? Yet you clipped it off, remember that? You dip it in water and try and get the sharp black lines to be a little more faded. Suddenly you can't tell which way to turn. 
It says right, but you can't quite make that out. You do not mess with the map. Okay, so here we are. Remember the beginning? It says the 10 resolutions of manly honor. I'm laying a foundation because this is the type of stuff that causes a man to rise up. This is the type of thing that causes a man to go to the, you know, the recruiting station you know, for the Marines and say, I'm here. Put me into the, to the military. Do whatever you need to do. Stick me in. So that's what moved men throughout the ages because they saw the borders of their country endangered. They saw their families and their friends endangered. So the men stood up and said, hey, I want to sign up to help. The Church of Jesus Christ has a recruiting station right now. And God's looking for a few good men who are willing to spend body and blood for the glory of the king. Because something is infringing upon the territory of God's redeemed. We cannot let that happen in this generation. Question, to whom are the paths of the Lord, to whom are the paths of the Lord, mercy and truth? Is it an accurate conclusion to claim that from now on every road you travel will take you to God? The fear of bleach. This is in, uh, out of my book, uh, Bravehearted Gospel. I have this story from college where you know, my roommate and I, his name was Bob. Uh, isn't that a great name? Bob. Uh, you can spell it backwards and it says the same thing. We used to joke about that all the time. But uh, our feet stunk. Okay? We both were athletes. I was a soccer player. He was a swimmer. And our room stunk. Our feet stunk. Isn't this a wonderful story? We had a problem. Okay, we needed to do something about it. And so we were talking home. Uh, Bob was talking to his dad one day, and his dad is sort of this scientist guy. And he made a statement like, well, you stick your feet in a certain concoction of bleach and water, and it will burn off the athlete's foot. You know, that sounded reasonable to us. I wanted this gone. Okay, I don't want to lug this stuff around inside my shoe. It's gone. Okay, so we just couldn't remember what the recipe was. Because it was sort of like, you know, Ten parts bleach, one part water. What was it? Uh, ten parts water, one part bleach. We couldn't quite remember. <laughs> so I don't remember what we ended up coming to, but it was wrong. Okay, let me just put it that way. You know, it was probably something like 40 parts water, one part bleach. We must have been like half and half. Okay, somewhere around there. It's like, oh, you know, just something in the middle. It, it, we just wanted to kill it off quick. So there we were in the uh, college, you know, bathrooms, you know, the public bathrooms, and we were sitting on the counter with our feet in the mixture. And uh, we needed to have them in there for 10 minutes, I think. And after about 30 seconds to a minute, my feet and my ankles were burning hot. I was like, Bob, how how you feeling there? Uh, He goes, doing doing all right, doing all right. I go, how long are we supposed to have our feet in this? And my dad said, 10 minutes. Oh, okay. Ah. And we, neither of us were going to be the first one to take our feet out. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, 10 minutes. I can handle 10 minutes of this. Okay, long and short. I don't know. We always, I, we always say that the other one was the one who pulled his feet out first. I still think it's Bob. He thinks it's me. But uh, long and short, we pulled our feet out. My feet, literally from the mixture down that they had been in, submerged in, were bright red. All the hair on my legs singed off. Okay, this is what most of us are afraid of when it comes to doctrine. When you start dealing with the specifics of Scripture, God says it, and He doesn't stutter. 
He actually means this. Well, hey, we need to be a little more you know, generous here, a little more loose in our definitions of things. Because it's like bleach. We are afraid that it's going to singe all the hair off our life. We don't want that type of specificity in our existence as Christians. There's a fear of this. However, I want you to know, when it's blended in properly and you get the right parts of love and grace and kindness and mercy mixed in with truth, it all works. See, if you want to burn off that terrible disease which is on your soul, you need truth the way God defines truth, not the way the culture does. Catechism. You guys know what a catechism is? Catechism is when, you know, like an older teacher type or a pastor or a parent asks their student or their child a question. And then the child has a sort of like a pre-recorded, memorized response. And it sounds very dull and lifeless, which is why we've moved away from catechism in Christianity. This used to be the common thing. I mean, for every, almost every great Christian man or woman that you know grew up on catechism. We don't touch the stuff because, hey, I want my answers to be real. I don't want to just give back a, a flavorless pat answer to a question. It's reasonable, okay? By the way, I, I sort of have thought the same way for years. However, when you're training in something, say you're training in any type of science, if you're training in any type of mathematical venture, specifics are very important. Two plus two always equals four. When you're doing a, a, a multiplications table, you're not just looking for a flavorful answer from your son. It's like, could you give me sort of your answer? What do you feel? Well, you know, I'm feeling it. five times five sort of is equaling 100 today. Good for you. So five times five always equals 25. Anyone who deals in math knows that. And I want you to realize it's not that God's truth is like mathematics and science. However, there's an element of it that is. It's truth. It's unbending. It does not move. So therefore, catechism is one of the ways to train a young mind and a young heart to understand things that are rigid and solid that are not moving. As they're growing up, you are training them not to just give one answer. They can give the correct answer to the catechism. And they can come up with 10 of their own creative ways to say it in their own words. You can give them all the freedom they need to be able to articulate the truth of God's kingdom in a way that fits them. But it still must be true. And it still must agree with their original answer. Truth is truth. Does catechism save the soul? Absolutely not. You catechize a kid growing up, that doesn't mean they have the truth of Jesus Christ. So... That's the danger. Most of us are saying, hey, my kid was groomed in Awanas. They know all the scriptures. Yeah, and they never owned it. They were never changed by it. It never dropped from their head to their heart and altered their existence, which is why then we stay away from scripture. Well, did you see that child grew up in Awanas and memorized all the scriptures and then fell away? They never even owned it. It must not work. Okay, that is a completely different issue. As a parent, as a teacher, as a trainer, as a preacher, you hit with truth. You constantly are giving truth. But you are after their soul to see them awakened, to yield their life, to fall in love with Jesus, to do things not because it's duty, but to do things because they love the living God. We must know the map. The map is not the treasure, but is the one thing to give us the directions to the treasure. I've been dealing with uh, forming a catechism for Hudson. You know, he's six and a half, and I, I feel he's ready for a catechism. So I've been dealing with various catechisms throughout the past and uh, 
coming up with sort of, it's not really an altered one, but it's just sort of a modified one to fit where I feel he's at. And in the process, I created a catechism called the Ten Resolutions of Manly Honor. And so what you're getting is the catechism for what it means to be a man that I'm preparing for Hudson. Isn't that exciting? So these are also the ten ways that I'm preparing him to have an early death. These are the ten ways that I'm training him to get on hell's most wanted list. You see that as a dad, I realize that's the most loving thing I can do for him, is to train him to live this life right. Ten resolutions of manly honor. What is the first principle of manly honor? Live always for the glory of God. Okay, I get excited by this list, by the way. Live always for the glory of God. How must you live in order for God to gain glory? I must yield my life to Jesus Christ and allow him to both own and operate my existence. For only God at work in me can bring glory to God through me. Listen to these scriptures from 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. He that speaks of himself seeks his own glory. But he that seeks his glory that sent him, the same is true and no unrighteousness is in him. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, the one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him. So whose glory is Jesus seeking? The glory of the Father. He says, the same is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus sought the glory of the Father. And look at this scripture. As my Father has sent me, even so I send you. Whose glory do we seek? The glory of Jesus Christ. This is primary for a man of God. Now I know girls in here, there's, you can take all of these. All these ten resolutions of manly honor, you could call them the ten resolutions of feminine honor, if you want. I just like to have the manly growl in the message. What is the second principle of manly honor? Offer body and blood to Jesus Christ. Could you imagine little boys growing up, testifying, saying this, offer body and blood to Jesus Christ? Gets me excited. What does it mean to offer your body and blood to Jesus Christ? It means the recognition that I am not my own. My body and blood belong to the King of Kings. He can break my body or pour out my blood in order that his almighty purposes might be accomplished on this earth. What? Says Paul, the apostle. Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, which means they belong to God. What is the third principle of manly honor? Be the first to suffer the wrong. At Ellerslie, we call it the first sufferer. Be the first to suffer the wrong. What does it mean to be the first to suffer wrong? It means that if someone must suffer, it is my privilege to be the one to bear it. That others of lesser strength and maturity might be preserved. There is always a first sufferer. There is suffering that takes place in this earth. Because we have an enemy and sin reigns in the hearts of men that are unyielded to the living God. Suffering reigns down here on this earth because the prince of this world still sits enthroned. Got a problem down here. 163 million orphans 
That means they have no barricade and no advocate and no protector between them and their harasser. So what does one who is willing to be the first to suffer do? That little child cannot be the one to suffer first. If someone's going to suffer, who is it? It's the man who stands in between the enemy and that little one and takes the hit. If someone's going to die, who is it? It's the man. Remember Jesus? Is the bride going to be the one that dies? Jesus stands in the gap. He's pinned to two pieces of wood. Takes the wrath of the Father. Takes the full penalty and weight of sin. Who suffered? Who died? The man. This is a principle of manly honor. This is how it works. We resolve in our souls as men to say, look no further. I'll be the one. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. In loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Okay, so you look around you and you treat everyone around you as more important than yourself. If everyone around you is more important than you, how do you live? You live the way Jesus lived. My life, my strength, my energy, my wealth, everything is to be spent for those more invaluable than me. So in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Okay, so Philippians just talked about the mind of Christ. What was that mind? Well, if you read Philippians 2, you'll find out what that mind was. Who took the lowest place and suffered a criminal's death. In our place, have this mind be in you. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. That is, that's a man line right there. Get a whole bunch of men in front of you. Men, arm yourselves likewise with this same mind. That's Christian manhood. What is the fourth principle of manly honor? Proclaim Jesus Christ in every moment. How can you proclaim Jesus Christ in every moment? By cultivating the life and power of Christ in me and thusly showcasing his nature, his attitude, and his actions in every life occasion. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember how this all started out? This is living for the glory of God. How in the world can you live for the glory of God? You tried it? It doesn't work. Just try it. Try and muster up the resolve to say, God, I'm living for your glory. You can't do it in your own strength. It's, we're pathetic. We cannot emulate. We cannot imitate the perfection of our God. And glory is an unshrouded view of his beauty, his majesty, and his likeness. Try that. You can't do it, but there is a hope for glory. You know what it is? It's Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you. Inside of you. In reality. Not in theory. In reality. Just as he was in the temple in the Old Testament. In actuality, he's in you now under the new covenant. This is how Christianity works. You want to proclaim Jesus Christ in every moment? There's only one way to do it. And that's to have Jesus Christ in you. Proclaiming himself in and through you. You abide in him. He abides in you. Without him, you can do nothing. Apart from him, you can do nothing. But if he 
owns you. You are in him and he's in you. Suddenly, it all works. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. So this is Paul talking about. He's talking about laboring. He's working hard for the glory of God. Listen to this line. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. What? The grace of God which was with him is how he labored. Grace is a synonym for the power of the indwelling spirit of God. It's the enabling work of God on our behalf and in and through us. Only let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. Your conversation, which means more than just a conversation, like a talk with someone. It means your entire life message that you're giving to this world. Let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. Your life and your message that comes forth out of you is supposed to become, is supposed to look like, is supposed to testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every moment of every day. This is is the resolve of the manly soul. We can't do it, though. A man knows his limitations. A true man is bent to God and says, I can't do this, but you can. Take me. Take this body. Take this blood. You house your holy presence here. But as he which has called us, called you as holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. You know, try it outside of God. Doesn't work. But Jesus in you, performing as only Jesus can, is the secret to Christianity. What is the fifth principle of manly honor? Let the vulnerable claim your strength. What does it mean to allow the vulnerable to claim your strength? Since Jesus Christ owns me, he has a claim on my life, energies, and strength. And thusly, those that have a rightful claim on his mercies, grace, and abundance, who are the poor, the weak, the orphan, the widow, the imprisoned, the refugee, etc., have a claim on me. How did that work? How did the orphan get a claim on me? Because the orphan has a claim on God. And guess what? God has a claim on me. So the orphan comes to God, and what does God do? He looks over at me and says, you, the one I own, I need you to help them. That's how it works. The vulnerable have a claim on my strength as a man. I am their servant as an extension of my bonded servitude unto my creator king. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. He that has pity, or is generous, unto the poor, lends unto the Lord. And that which he hath given, will he pay him again. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. What is the sixth principle of manly honor? Agree to the task even before it is assigned. Is that craziness or what? I love this. You see, God has a hold on you. He has a claim on your life. He is going to ask you to do things in the future, possibly even today, that go against the grain of your natural bent. When he asks you those things, do you have the right to dicker with God? Do you have the right to negotiate terms with God and say, could you give me another option? He's your commander. If you're a good soldier and you're on the battlefield and your commander says, go. You do not stop and weigh the options. I could die going in that direction. You already know that as a soldier. 
We as Christians, our issue is we don't know that. We have not already predecided to say yes. We have not already predecided that we will die. We've not accepted that. And as a result, we hesitate. We hedge. We halter. We falter. We say, I, I don't know about that. God, could, do you have any other options? Send someone else. I, I'm not fit for that. We agree to the task even before it is assigned. It's the predecided yes. Yes, Lord. He says, I haven't even asked you to do anything yet. I'm just saying, yes, Lord. I'm just practicing it. <laughs> I've already said yes to whatever you ask of me. I know that's scary. Get scared by the same thing, okay? But this is a resolution of manly honor. What does it mean to agree to a task even before it is assigned? It means that I have consecrated my ear unto God's word and his spirit's call. I have already declared yes, Lord, to any request he may make of me in the present and future. I will not hesitate when the challenge of obedience comes, but will move with swift-footed givenness to his command. Look in Exodus. This is the scripture where we get the concept of the bondservant. This is the man who was set free by his master, but because of his love for the master, returns to his master. It says, Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So the man, though he was set free, returns to his master and says, I want to serve you. And what does the master do? He bores a hole in his ear. The ear is a very important thing in the Hebrew culture. It means something. Well, what's the ear good for? That's where you hear. When you are receiving a command, whether it's from Scripture or whether it's from the Spirit of God, where do you hear it? In your spiritual ear. When you hear with your spiritual ear, is your spiritual ear pierced? Do you have a pierced ear for the living God? In Exodus 29, it's talking about the consecration of, the, of the, the priests. And it says, Then thou shalt kill the ram and take of his blood and put it upon the tip of the right ear of Aaron and upon the tip of the right ear of his sons. The right side is the side of strength. Right ear, the sign of obedience. The priests, if they were going to work in the temple of God, or in this case, the tabernacle of God, they needed to have a smeared right ear. Blood on the ear, consecrated. My ear belongs to God. What he asks of me, he gets. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, we all have ears. No, we don't. Not spiritual ears. Not consecrated ears. You see, this is Jesus. He says this over and over and over again. You should study it. He will have ears to hear. Well, we all have ears. No, only those that have ears to hear will hear what God is saying. Then look at this. I compiled them in Revelation. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. It literally says, I don't know, about seven times. In Revelation 2 and 3. If any man have an ear, let him hear. These are the bondservants of the living God. And a manly resolution is my ear for my God. I pre-decide to say, yes, Lord. What is the seventh principle of manly honor? Never shrink from the challenge, but rise to meet it. What does it mean to shrink from the challenge? It means to put more value on my selfish comforts and securities than on God's glory. It means to cower and forsake the empowering grace of God to meet meet life's demands. Do you know that there is never an excuse to cower? And you could say, I'm unfit for this. I cannot walk this narrow way. You know that if God has called you down that narrow way, he will equip you with his empowering grace for every step. You do not need to cower. If a Christian knows that, there's no stopping us. You have everything you need for every step. Don't consider 20 steps forward from now. 
Yes, it might not look very easy, but when you get there, you will have the grace for that step too. You have the grace for the next step in your life. You do not need to shrink back. You do not need to cower. What does it mean to rise to meet the challenge? It means trusting God to carry me, enable me, and prove victorious in and through every trial. It means to bear the attitude of the super triumphant. Listen to Acts 20. This is a combination of a few... I think the the parts that are boldened are from a different translation mixed in with another one because I wanted the word shrink. Okay? Uh, So please, uh, you can check in. I don't know. I think this might be NASB mixed in. I'm not positive. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. It means I did not draw back. I did not cower in those moments. But I stepped forward, and I, as my testimony, Paul's saying, as a testimony to the church of Jesus Christ, I did not shrink back. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man shrink back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who shrink back to destruction, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They loved not their lives unto the death, which means so much as to shrink from death. Death sitting right there. What do most of us do? Ah, We cower. What does a man do? Steps right into it. If God says march, you march. You ever hear about uh, Alexander the Great's strongmen? He had his mighty soldiers around him and he was laying siege to a castle for over a month. Everyone surrendered to Alexander. Who were these people to not surrender? So as a demonstration of the power of Alexander, he took his strongest men, announced so that all those in the castle would understand, and he told them to march. And there was a cliff, 100 yards in front of them. I mean, hundreds of hundreds of feet, if not thousands of feet, into a rocky canyon. He says, march, march, march. Every single one of them tumbled off to their death. The white flag went up inside the castle. If Alexander's men would not shrink from death, these men will stop for nothing. May the world out there, may all the powers of earth and hell know that the saints of God will not shrink back before anything. Watch ye stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. I just had to throw that one in. I'll teach on that at uh, Ellerslie semester. It's one of my favorite lines. The Greek word, Andrizomai. Isn't that good? Andrizomai. It sort of has that mafia tone to it. Andrizomai. Isn't that good? Doesn't it charge you? Quit you like men. What is the eighth principle of manly honor? Never dilute the manly gospel message. What does it mean to dilute the manly gospel message? It means that for the sake of earthly approval, comfort, and fleshly compromise, the gospel is shorn of its grandeur and triumph. The gospel means death to the old man, the removal of the stronghold of sin, and the power of the indwelling Christ enabling us to carry out all the impossible errands of God. And this message must never be compromised. Hold fast the form of sound words, says Paul to Timothy which means with unyielding grip and resolve, hold fast to the soundness of the gospel. Don't let it go. Which thou hast heard of me, in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwells in us. 
You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Every word of God is pure. Every word. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee and thou be found a liar. You do not mess with this message. This message has been stayed, has been held, has been secure for ages. You do not tamper with it. This is God's message, not the mere message of men. What is the ninth principle of manly honor? Never heed the old man's fuss. You guys know who the old man is? At Ellerslie, we train in the old man. Not because we want to talk about him, but because we need to talk about him. It's the flesh. Paul calls it the old man, the flesh. It's the sin principle in you. You're seated on the throne of your life, and as a result, there's a power given to sin, to the flesh, to the old man. Isn't that part of you that is always counseling you to take care of yourself? You can hear a strong message on the gospel, and there's this other voice that will talk to you and say, well, you have to be watchful of that. That's a little extreme. Who is that voice? Is that God? Is God counseling you not to fully yield your life to him? It's the flesh. It's the old man. When the old man gets dealt with, which we'll talk about at Ellerslie this semester in great detail, he comes knocking. King, king, king. Hey, just wondering if I could come back in just for the night. You know, a good Friday night escapade. We've had some fun in the past. You owe me. Never heed the old man's fuss. What does it mean to heed the old man's fuss? It means to lend an ear to the old man's wine, self-pity, and craving for fleshly indulgence. But a man of honor must not heed this voice of flesh, for he owes it nothing. And it is not in the least bit required to feed its lusts. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. Reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Do not heed the old man's fuss. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh. We owe him nothing, is what it's saying. To live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. That means to embalm. To give no power, to give no authority to the flesh. It has no place in your body. What is the tenth principle of manly honor? Never capitulate to the devil. Aren't some of you thinking, Eric, your vocabulary for your six-and-a-half-year-old is a little big. I don't even know what that word means. It's a good word. My son needs to learn this word. It's a great way to teach vocabulary. You don't need to shy away from good vocabulary. Don't ever follow one of those, this is the vocabulary for those under 10. It's ridiculous. You ever read Scottish Chiefs? Scottish Chiefs was written for kids. On the second page is the word pusillanimity. Uh-huh. Enough said. What does it mean to capitulate to the devil? Capitulate means to surrender, to give in, and to cease resistance to an enemy force. The man of honor must never capitulate to the enemy. No matter what terms the devil offers, he must not be either believed or trusted. And even if he offers me all the treasures of this earth, or the position of king over all the earth, or the applause of all the peoples of this earth, the man of honor must remain resolute and unbending. We do not negotiate with terrorists. We do not discuss our life with the enemy. We only deal with our God. I don't care what he's bartering with. I don't care what he's putting on the table and offering you. You do not negotiate with the enemy. He is, by definition, the enemy. But he will come in sheep's clothing. He will come as an angel of light. And he will make an appeal to your soul. You know the word of God and you'll recognize him because you'll see little fangs. 
That sheep's clothing, pretty good outfit. Uh, I see the fangs. You're drooling all over the place, buddy. Okay? He's after your soul. Do not capitulate. Resist the devil. This is my little combination scripture. Look at that combination at the bottom. Isn't that exciting? Listen to this. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Neither give place to the devil. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith. Okay? Do not capitulate to the devil. Here's our summary. Ten resolutions of manly honor. For all of you that have already forgotten what we went through. These notes will be downloadable when this goes online, so you guys will all have access to them. Any Ellerslie student, any notes that you ever know have ever occurred in all of Ellerslie history are just available to you. Just, so ask for them. And that goes for any of you out there, too. One, live always for the glory of God. Two, offer body and blood to Jesus Christ. Three, whoa. Three, be the first to suffer the wrong. Four, proclaim Jesus Christ in every moment. Five, let the vulnerable claim your strength. Six, agree to the task even before it is assigned. Seven, never shrink from the challenge but rise to meet it. Eight, never dilute the manly gospel message. Nine, never heed the old man's fuss. Ten, never capitulate to the devil. That's a man. And three, it's Quit yourself like men. By the way, that was a statement to the body of Christ. Which means even though this has a manly growl to it, every one of you ladies in here, you take it as your very resolutions. There's no difference. We're the body of Christ. We bear the resemblance of Jesus in all manner, in all actions, in all behavior, in all attitude. Everything we do resembles our king. And so for the girls in here, you're resembling a king. You're resembling the perfect man when you are living out your femininity. And as we always say, there is a distinction between the honor of a woman and the honor of a man. They're almost identical, except a woman allows a man to be the first to suffer. It's one of the great challenges. A woman allows a man. You know how hard that is for a woman? To send off her man to the death? I'll finish with this. This is a great story, since it sort of fits. Sabina Wormbrandt, Richard Wormbrandt, Romania. KGB overtaking the country, basically saying to all the pastors, we will kill you if you don't change your message. You start preaching the communist message and we'll leave you alone. We won't care about your church if you're teaching atheism. What kind of church is that? So they have a pastor's conference. The KJB is lying in the front row and they're testing all the pastors. Richard Wormbrand is sitting in the back. This is in Romania. I don't know if I said that or not. But uh, Richard Wormbrand and his wife are sitting in the back. And one pastor after the next is blaspheming God. And Sabina looks over at Richard and says, aren't you going to wipe the spit off of Christ's face? And he looks at his wife and he says, if I say anything, they will kill me. And Sabina says, I would rather be married to a dead man than a coward. And Ridzomai, quit yourself like men. We are in a generation where men are needed. Men to rise up and be precisely what God has equipped them and called them to be. These are merely 10 resolutions that I'm teaching to my son. I'm sure you could come up with 40 if you put your mind on it. Now, there's a lot of resolutions we can come up with. 
If this list needs to be baked down better, I'd love for you to submit to me some ideas. I'd love to get the ultimate list. But I want to train my son in manly honor. I want to train him to understand why he's here on this earth. To not be ashamed of that gospel. For it's the power of God unto salvation. And there is no other power for men and by which men can be saved. None exists but Jesus Christ. And I unashamedly take that stance in a generation that would look at me as intolerant and closed-minded and narrow-minded. My God has said it. My God is right. My God created all. My God knows what he's talking about. My God is the one in whom I put my trust. I don't care what the philosophies of this age testify to. I believe the word of God. Let's pray. Precious King of Kings, we worship you because you are perfect in every way. Lord, if only your glory could be made manifest in this earth. We know it will in the future, but we want it to be seen now. Thank you that there is a hope of glory. Thank you that you are willing to come and enter into your saints and shine forth your beauty, your glory, your majesty. And I pray that you would do it. Lord, for those students that are just arriving, that are wondering what they're getting themselves into, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would hold them tight and that you would let them know that even even though your call is a rigorous one and even though it is a challenging one, you are the one who will complete it in them. You are the one who will be their shield. You will not leave them or forsake them. You do not set us forth on the impossible mission only to be fodder for the enemy. You send us forth to win. We will, as the church of Jesus Christ, be victorious. And in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you for that fact. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.